0: and welcome back to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice. We're at the end of July and as we move into August, we are moving into National Fat Awareness and Acceptance Month and I am so thrilled today to have the newly formally hired and paid director of the National Association for the Advancement of Fat Acceptance because we need to pay our people for the work they do. Tigress Osborne, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here with you. It's fantastic to have you here. Let's start first. What is the National Association for Fat Acceptance for our listeners who are not familiar with you guys? Our nickname is NAFA, and NAFA is the National Association
1: to Advance Fat Acceptance. It was originally founded as the National Association to Aid Fat Americans, but over the course of our 54-year history, you know, we've had some, some language changes, but we um, have kept the word fat because we are advocates for fat people and advocates for use of that terminology for fat people in neutral and in positive ways. And we do um, lots of different kinds of education, advocacy, support. Our mission is to change perceptions of fat and to eliminate size discrimination.
0: You guys do a ton of fascinating work. And I love the fact that you get into using the word right away because when you go to your website, and we'll have the link on the show notes for our listeners, it says fat all over it. And for a lot of people, that word, not to, you know, I guess I do compete in pun term- tournaments, so it is intentional, but it carries a lot of weight. Yes.
1: I, I uh, really love fat puns. I always like to say that uh, what we're going to do as advocates is throw our weight around on behalf of fat people. So I, I'm a big fan of puns. And so is our new board chair, Amanda Cooper, who took over the board when I became the executive director. Um, So we do a lot of, you know, punny fat stuff uh, uh, around us. Um, Don't go to our website expecting all the puns, but you definitely go there expecting the word fat. We, we, you know, we do do feel really strongly that like you can't destigmatize something that you won't even say. And we do recognize and like fully understand most of us through our own lived experiences that the word fat can carry a lot of trauma for a lot of people. And so what we do is encourage folks to use it in any situation in which they are empowered to use it. And on behalf of you know the collective and on behalf of themselves but when talking about individual people to use the terminology that those individual people prefer right everybody's not ready to embrace fat especially in a public way but it it is so empowering for so many people to just start using that word to take the sting out of it to use it the same way that you would describe someone as tall or, you know, or describe someone as having brown eyes or whatever. Just, you know, another another word in terms of physical description. But also for many of us, a really important word in terms of identity, because who we are has been shaped by our experience of interacting with the world as people who are fat or even people who are perceived to be fat. And it just feels really You know, there's a long legacy, not just with NAFA, definitely not just with NAFA, of of activists and advocates really leaning into that word. And that the people who really are doing the work to try to change the world for fat people in ways that don't require fat people to have to lose weight to get access to the benefits of a better world you know, are are very often people who are leaning into that terminology. So it, it's not just that it's like personally empowered, it also connects you to a community of people who have a particular approach to thinking about fat liberation, fat politics,
0: fat rights, all of those things. For you, what did it take to get comfortable using the word fat to describe yourself? You know,
1: I have to say that the the first time I heard that that was a thing you could kind of do it was sort of like a, a light bulb, and it felt pretty comfortable to me from then out. I, what I had to navigate was learning how, learning what to do with other people's discomfort, what to do with other people's sort of like, oh, no, you're not, right? My introduction to NAFA and my introduction to that concept were, were pretty close to the same time. I was, you know, on my 18th birthday, actually, um, at my college as part of, a, you know, early 90s style diversity day on a liberal arts college. We had, there was a, a staff member who was uh, a member of the Boston chapter of NAFA. Her name was Carrie Hemingway. I always like to say her name. And she did a workshop on large bodied women. I think it was called large bodied ladies. I have to look it up again. I still have the brochure from that in my college scrapbook. It was, that was the first time I think I'd heard of NAFA or that NAFA's name stuck with me. I always tell people like, I probably saw NAFA adv- advocates or at, ad, you know, volunteers from NAFA or spokespeople from NAFA on the Donahue show that those of you of A Certain Vintage will remember Phil Donahue as this sort of like grandfather of daytime talk show hosts. And I remember seeing people when I was a teenager on Donahue or probably on Oprah, or Sally Jess Raphael, those kinds of shows who were sort of like, I'm fat and I'm okay with that. But I didn't attach the name Nafa until this like Nafa staff member who was part of my you know, who Nafa leader who was part of my college staff really kind of cemented that that attachment for me, and so I felt like um, it just made sense to use the word. Like I really like the euphemisms. I know that there are a lot of people who are highly annoyed by euphemisms for fat. I just love language, and I like a lot. Like I don't. I'm not bothered by being called curvy or fluffy or full-figured or any of those kinds of things. I just want them in addition to fat. I don't want them as replacements for fat. Uh, I don't want to shy away from the word fat.
0: And you talk about dealing with other people's discomfort. One thing I've had to deal with in my own life, and I know a a lot of us who are fat have to deal with, is when you use the word with your doctor. And when I have used the word "fat" with my doctor and used it in a neutral sense to describe myself, like medical professional, their brain etches sketches. They like don't know what to do with that. So because Nafa's work is so Mm -hmm. focused on size acceptance and accessibility, and healthcare is really hard to accept, accessible when you are fat. Yeah. What are some of the things that that you guys recommend for talking to medical professionals when I mean, you can recognize yeah I'm fat but that's doesn't mean I shouldn't get healthcare and it doesn't mean every health issue I have is due to weight? Well, of course, that is right. And we have coming up
1: this month is Fat Liberation Month. Um, we started that three years ago to just because we felt like there needed to be, you know, a much wider celebration of fat identity and deeper dives into looking at fat needs and fat rights and fat joy. And we do have uh one of our virtual events this month is uh featuring activist Shiloh George, who does a lot of work around trauma and who's gonna talk specifically about like a, a really brilliant. Document that she's created to like outline some stuff for her doctors, both in terms of what they um, what they prefer their doctors use in for like terminology, like, please use the word fat, please do not use the word obese with me, or please, you know, do not tell me my BMI range or whatever. But also in terms of things, just like, please know a couple of things about me as a human being. So instead of seeing me as just a fat body or just a medical chart, you are actually are, you know, thinking about who I am. So Shiloh's is going to demonstrate that for us. They've going to, They've, they're going to show their document and then she's going to um do, we're going to do some breakout rooms uh, so folks can make their own documents. So that's one thing that you definitely can do. And please join us to do it together in community with us. But also, I think just having that initial conversation when you're with a new prom- provider, even just some of those very basic, I prefer this word. You know, sometimes practicing things that you're going to say if you're dealing with a new provider, having practiced declarative sentences instead of sort of hesitant sentences can help. So, for example, my doctor is pretty well trained. She messed up (laughs) something in the beginning and I was like, here's a bunch of documentation of all the reasons why I think these things and need you to talk to me about, you know, weight neutral healthcare." So she's pretty good, but she was on on a vacation and I had to see another provider in that medical office and that person immediately started trying to talk to me about weight loss surgery, which is something that is just not, I don't consider a viable option for me. And I have great concerns about as a recommendation for most people especially as it's just sort of blanket recommendation. Like you literally, you've never met me. We're doing a phone interview. You've not seen me. You've not talked to me. You've just seen my BMI on this chart. And then you start talking to me about weight loss surgery, which is not what I made this appointment to talk about. And so I literally just kept repeating as she kept trying to push it. I literally just kept repeating. That is not an option I will consider that is not an option I will consider. So like, I didn't leave her room for any, like, there's not going to be a why there's not going to be like, I'm allowed to decline things that you recommend. You are not the boss of me. (laughs) And, but just having like, having had that short declarative sentence was really super helpful to me. The other thing that comes to mind for me is, uh, and I know this can be harder in our sort of like, um, you know, post COVID rules kind of medical environments, but when you can take another person with you, especially if you know, you're going to potentially hear vulnerable news. It's sometimes like you need a person who's one step removed from the news to do the advocacy because you are in your feelings about whatever the news was. So anytime that you can, you know, take another, uh, another adult human along who can help you make sense of things or help push back. If the doctor's pushing you in directions, you don't want to go.
0: And I can't underscore that more highly. I started my work in HIV and and AIDS, and it was one of the things I learned early on as a teenager is you never go to the hospital alone, especially to like the ER or any major appointment, because not only can't you process some of the information, but sometimes you need to gang up on these medical professionals and say, you need to listen.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, hmm. And if you're in a situation where you absolutely have to go alone, just tell them you'd like to record the news that they're giving you so that you can mm-hmm. listen back to it or have somebody else listen to it with you and see what you think about it. I mean, you you have to you should not have to advocate for yourself in these ways, but asking for what you need in medical settings, you know, I need a bigger blood pressure cuff. I need, um, I need a bigger bed than this, you know? I need you to find a bariatric, bariatric wheelchair in this hospital somewhere because this one is hurting me or because I can't walk and that one literally does not fit me, so I need you to get a bigger one. And, you know, a lot of medical professionals want to be more accommodating than their systems are set up for them to be. Um, so, for example, um, many fat activists actually refuse to be weighed at medical appointments unless it is medically necessary. There's actually... Uh, someone, I'm so sorry, I can't think of the website right now, but where you can get these uh, free cards that say, don't weigh me unless medically necessary... And medically necessary means like you need this information to prescribe medication for me or we are using this in a very we're using weight in a very specific way to track something about, for example, water retention or something like that. But like the sort of blanket weighing of everyone at the beginning of an appointment before you've even said my ear hurts or I'm here because I broke my toe or whatever is not necessary in almost every case. And so if it's upsetting to you to hear the weight or upsetting to you to be worried about the the conflict that it's going to bring up when you talk to your doctor, you can actually just opt out of it. And it's confusing sometimes to folks, but the more confidently you say, I'm just not doing that today, the the more likely you are to just not get any pushback. And, you know, if they don't know what to do with their systems that require them to put a weight in, that's their problem, not yours. So, um, so that's one thing that uh, another thing that people can do that just like sort of right off the bat alleviates some stress and drama in a lot of medical situations.
0: It really does. And we can't talk about weight and especially weight medicine without talking about other intersectional identities. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all one messy ball. And one person that gets referenced a lot on the show is gonna strengths and mm-hmm. their work around fear of the black body. So let's, and I know NAFA has a, a big focus on intersectional identities. Mm-hmm. So right now, so much of the language and politics is under pressure around race. Like we have so much conservative stuff coming in and all of this stuff around, we don't want to teach about anything Black in our history. We don't want to teach about anything Native in our history. It's also eliminated, we don't even teach anything about fatness in school, except culturally where it's subconscious, like fat is bad. and stuff. Mm-hmm. So what is the work going on with NAFA right now around intersectional identities and fatness?
1: Well, there's so there's a couple things that um, come to mind as you pose this question. One thing is I always like to be careful and be very thoughtful in making comparisons between like fat folks and other folks, because part of intersectionality is understanding, first of all, fat folks includes other folks. It's not like the fat people and the black people like some of us. For example, me are the fat people and the black people, right? Or are the fat people and the disabled people? Or are the fat people and the queer people in one person, right? It's not just that how those communities need together, but also ha- need to come together, but also how those identities come together in ourselves. And there are ways in which we talk about anti-fatness as being the sort of um, the least illuminated oppression right like we use terminology like less acceptable prejudice which is like really problematic terminology because if you are looking around the world as like as you just pointed out right you're looking at what people are doing about I can't even say what they're doing with critically critical race theory because what they're doing is with like an invented phantom of critical race theory which is not actually what critical race theory is but like they sort of like you know racist applications to like or nationalistic applications to like what we teach about history or what we limit about history. We know that all over the world, there are anti-trans, you know, uh, all over the U.S. especially, there are anti-trans, you know, legislation that is being passed, anti-trans bills that are being passed. So, like, we know that those, you know, siblings of of non Binary genders are are just being targeted, targeted, targeted. We know there are other ways that there that that folks are coming for LGBTQ rights. We know that even though the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, what is is this a thirty year anniversary? It's, I feel like this is a big Even though it's been decades, we know that actual accessibility is not really a thing. So, like, there is no last acceptable prejudice. What there is is. Some, some social sanctions for saying certain things in public that don't seem to get applied to fat in the same way. But even that is a sort of crumbling paradigm as we like, you know, out n-word each other on Twitter or whatever. Like, there's like, where do those rules even still apply? So, like when we think about how different identity groups are experiencing the various oppressions and and barriers and discrimination and stigma that we all experience if we're not the most privileged people in the culture, we have to have like a nuanced thinking and talking about that. And we have to make sure that we're not sort of taking each identity category and then defaulting people only to the privileged identities in, you know, the that that category is not. So like we have a long history in a lot of fat movement spaces of sort of like what fat really means is fat cisgender white women of a certain age and straight cisgender white women of a certain age in in a lot of movement spaces and in many movement spaces where there was more, um, much more like deep and important leadership from, from especially folks who identify as fat dykes, right? Like, so some like fat lesbians, even some of those spaces were like still really white, especially at certain points in history or still really middle class or whatever, right? And so like, we have all these sort of different areas of fat liberation movement where we've not been fully inclusive historically or where there were like pockets of inclusivity, but then broadly, um, it didn't feel like that for a lot of folks. And so, like, that's what we're with. And specific to NAFA. Um, NAFA especially had a very white, heteronormative, you know, cisgender, middle and upper middle class kind of ethos. You know, that's not to say there weren't other folks involved. There were other folks deeply involved. Like, some of the women from the fat underground, which was way more radical than NAFA, and actually was started by women who left NAFA because NAFA wasn't radical enough, still did a lot of work with NAFA over the years. Um, Like, so there was, like, there, of course, are these, like, amazing folks who are not that sort of main demographic that the organization was reaching, but also there was a lot more drama and trauma for those folks in being in those spaces. And so then you get to this era where we are trying to be the organization I want to be part of you know, the organization that other women of color I know want to be part of, other people of color I know want to be part of, and and that, you know, that is that is queer inclusive, that is thinking about disability beyond just, do we have spaces for scooters at our conference, but like, what about other kinds of disabilities or whatever? And so like, we're really just trying to be attentive to like, being for more fat people (laughs) like being for more fat people having other fat people who who may have looked at NAFA historically and been like that's not for me to say like they might still be like that's not for me but they might be more like that's not for me but good for them right like good what they're doing not like that's not for me so you know f me I guess because there's nothing for me like and so so that's where we you know like are really trying to like and to really truly be truly inclusive, not just to sort of be like DEI corporate inclusive. Like we can count the people, right? We can say 50% of our board is people of color. That's never been true in the history of NAFA before. And it is true right now. But also like, what what does that mean for other people of color? Being like, yeah, it was never true in the history of the US that there was a Black president. Then there was. That didn't erase racism, right? So what else? What else? And so we're trying to always look at the what else.
0: So as as the, the newly appointed executive director, one of the things they ask EDs when you come into any position is, what goals do you have for the organization? So you're coming into this, I mean, you've been involved with them for a while, but coming into this position, where do you want to see it go? Well, you know, my vision is to
1: expand a much more inclusive and much more multi-generational NAFA. Um, And I see us as the sort of gateway organization for a lot of folks who are new to movement politics. Everyone on our board has... at at least some degree of radical politics, right? Like, like, none of us are conservatives. Some of us have, you know, some moderate leanings, maybe, but I think most of us would proudly say that, you know, we see ourselves at a minimum of (laughs) as liberal and, and, you know, at a maximum as radical, right? But we also understand that, folks are at different areas of learning curve around social justice issues and around um radical politics and radical body love and any of that stuff. and so we want to have we want to strike the right balance between being as safe as we can be for folks, like not letting somebody else's learning curve make it make a make a situation where the most marginalized folks don't feel welcome, right? not not letting somebody else's learning curve create that kind of energy but also like giving people space to to make mistakes and recover from them in com- in the spirit of community right so i want us to be casting a wider net in terms of who we are reaching and pulling in and then you know i've been on the board of nafa since 2015 and i was the board chair before being appointed executive director and and in an organization that doesn't have paid staff that has a working board, which is what we've had always, even at the brief points in our history where we did have some paid staff. Um, We've been, you know, primarily volunteer run, but we have been shifting that, you know, like like to living a value of paying more people for their labor. Like we're super grateful for all of our volunteers historically and now. And also Relying only on volunteer labor often means that there are a lot of people who can't participate in the leadership because they need to be working <laughs> one or many jobs. And so, um, so like what? So part of, one of the goals is to grow staff, right? To like to not be like, now we have a paid executive director. Let me collect my pocketbook and go. Like it's really going to be like, now we have a paid executive director. You know, how do we hire even more staff? we've been um compensating people for labor in lots of ways more so than ever in the history of our organization even though we have a smaller budget than we've had at some other points in our history um so like we pay people to to be guests on our webinars we pay the asl interpreters who we work with we pay our video editor we pay different contractors and um and folks like that but we want to have more paid full-time staff it's uh it strengthens our organization and sort of like strength begets strength. Like, you know, when you sort of shore up the infrastructure, then there are more folks who are willing to and interested in giving. And then that allows you to grow exponentially and serve more people and reach more people and make more change. Right. So we want to grow our budget. We want to grow our staff. We want to grow our reach. And we want to do that without completely compromising our values. (laughs) You know, we We want to be creative at looking at partnerships that haven't always been explored by our community. You know, we're, we're working with Dove um, and we'll be having some of the Dove folks join us during Fat Liberation Month too, to, to talk about why we're working with them and what the reservations were about working with them and like why, why we did make that choice where other organizations might not make that choice. But like, but just thinking about, you know, where the funding is where we are one of the most underfunded social justice areas in the world, right? Like in all of that, what I said before about like sort of comparisons and being careful with that, it is simply accurate to say um, that there are many categories of social justice and many areas of you know diversity, inclusion, whatever label you want to use for that, that have much more funding than fat liberation. The funding about fat people is anti-obesity funding. Like, that's where the funding, that's where the money, that's where the millions of dollars and billions of dollars are. We're not a millions and billions of dollar organization. Um, We've never been that. And no one in FAT Liberation has ever been that. No organization in FAT Liberation has ever been that. So anyway, like, so those are some of the things that come to mind for me as goals. It really, becoming the executive director really is just continuing to do build the work that I was doing as board chair and that we were doing together as a board. um, But now with a little bit more infrastructure around that.
0: And while we're on money, let's talk about how fat people get paid. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's talk about how fat people don't get paid. Exactly. (laughs) Even this week in the economist, they did a whole big expose on the woman who did um, French women don't get fat and the, the pay structure Skinny people, straight-sized people get paid more, dollar mm-hmm. for dollar. And you can you can splice those statistics and it can be, you can add in all sorts of compensating factors. We still get paid less. So where do we even, like, we don't have class action lawsuits against corporations that are saying, hey, you're paying your fat staff less than you're paying your straight-sized staff. Like, so, that's yeah. not been a thing. So there are a couple of reasons for that.
1: One is that we have an incredibly pervasive cultural message of if something is happening to you because you are fat, the solution to that is for you as an individual to lose weight. So if you're being underpaid because people think you're too big, then you know get your big ass down to Jenny Craig and do something about that. Not Jenny Craig because they went out of business. Wah, wah. But um, <laughs> I'll you know you know you handle that. That's not a systemic problem. That's a you problem. Well, that's wrong. It is a systemic problem, right? It it is a systemic problem. And so, you know, thinking more about things like class action lawsuits is, I think, one of the shifts we will see. Part of the reason we don't see as much in terms of legal, you know, like legal, the seeking of recourse through legal means is because there are very few places anywhere in the world including the united states where there's explicit law prohibiting people from discriminating based on body size and so what happens is it's already hard even in the areas where there are laws where there is disability law where there is you know racial equity law or you know any gender equity law like wherever there are laws already, it's already hard to prove a discrimination case. If you go into court and try to prove a discrimination case in an area where the law has not explicitly said that it's wrong to discriminate, it becomes even more challenging. So one of the things that we are working on um, with our colleagues at Flair, which is the FAT Legal Advocacy Rights and Education Project, we uh, co-founded the Campaign for Size Freedom. Um, and that is where Dove has come in with some you know corporate responsibility and purpose work support to to help us raise the conversation around why we need to be looking at, including body size, height weight, any combination of height weight as protected classes under and you know anti-discrimination laws. Right now, you know, the grand Elder law of that is Michigan's Elliott Larson Act which just includes height and weight as protected classes. Some of your listeners may know that like recently in New York city, um, we worked on the campaign, worked with our partners in labor movement, especially shout out to the retail workers union and the, um, the, the retail Warehouse and Department Store Union, RWDSU, and Retail Action Project, which represents retail workers who are in non-unionized shops, as like this just really tremendous partners with us in working um, with Council Member Abreu in New York City to pass some legislation there. That only made New York City the seventh city in the United States that has this kind of legislation. Michigan has this kind of legislation. and in the state of Washington there are some limited protections under um, under disability law with the labeling of obesity as a disability, which is complicated, but we use whatever tools are in our toolbox in the legal system. So we use that law if we if we need to use that law. But that's it. That's what exists in the in the country right now. Um, and so we are working to support pending legislation in Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Vermont, and now coming soon to Colorado. Um, And our colleagues at Flair, especially the new Flair fellow, Reagan Chastain, are, you know, are are helping guide us in thinking about, like, where else, right? And volunteers are helping guide us in thinking about where else because they are popping up to say, like, what about here? Here's what, what about where I live, you know? And so we do think that you know within the next few few years we'll see some other major cities we'll hopefully see some other states we don't think we'll see a federal law anytime relatively soon but that's the ultimate goal right is a federal law and then I think also I always say fat people are you know collectively increasing in audacity right there have always been audacious and I mean audacious in the like best possible way right They're just sort of like. I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do kind of way. There are like, like fat people are just, we out here, like, right. We, We just like, like, and we're not going back. Right. And so you see fat people traveling differently. You see fat people insisting on medical accommodations differently. You see fat people getting mad about their income differently. You see more change in publications actually covering that. Like you, the, Piece you mentioned, or like the Wall Street Journal just did a piece, um, you know, they like the Forbes did some stuff recently. Like there are all of these, you know, and especially when the New York law first passed, there are a, a flurry of articles.
0: More people are paying attention to the issue of systemic oh. discrimination related to size. So since you brought up the media, I want to do a quick shout out. You guys offer a newsletter that people mm-hmm. can subscribe to, to get what's going on in the media. So you want to plug that real quick?
1: Yeah, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter at our website, uh, which is nafa.org, N-A-A-F-A.org. We have these two really fabulous volunteers, Bill and Terry Whites, who do one of our most popular newsletter features is this it's a media roundup where they just highlight some of the articles that are happening in the media around everything related to coverage of weight. Um, sometimes it's you know research, sometimes it's academic, sometimes it is the you know, mainstream, sometimes it's the celebrity stuff, whatever. It's not a comprehensive roundup of. Of everything ever, right? But they just highlight some every month of things for folks to think about and look at. And then we also had Pamela Mejia, who's a fantastic researcher, did some work for us to create a media study where she looked at the um, the results of the, the LexisNexis results for news stories for a year. Um, for those who don't know, that's like a, a database for, you know, just what I just said, new, news stories. And you know, 18,000 news stories about fat in relation to weight loss and health. And only a couple hundred news stories in 2022 about other things. Now that's news, news. It's not all of the entertainment stuff. It's not your favorite blogger. It's not, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not other newsletters you get, sub stacks, whatever. It's like, you know, more formal news coverage. But we want to shift that. That is one of the things I should have mentioned as a goal, right? Like part of what we want to do is shift the narrative around fat, so that every time we're talking about fat people, it's not about weight loss. It's not about health, because that's not all our lives are. And it's also not all that we should default back to when we're talking about our civil rights. When we're talking about civil rights, your individual health profile, or even the collective health profile of you know fat people as a group, however the medical establishment de- designates us, should not have anything to do with whether you are paid fairly for a job that you can do. Should not have anything to do with whether you, you know, are able to rent a home that you want to rent uh, without your landlord being prejudiced against you. You know, they, they should not have anything to do with, your health prof- profile should have something to do with whether or not you have surgery, your actual health profile not your perceived health profile just because of a number based on an old-timey calculation that we all know is problematic so like all of these things around like what happens sometimes is that folks fat folks say like we deserve our rights and people say obesity epidemic as a response to that or whatever it's like no those are that's an apples and oranges (laughs) like Mm -hmm. you know Your health profile, whatever your body size is, should not be the determination of your access, you know, and opportunity in the culture. Anyway, I feel like I was soapboxing
0: a little bit right there, and I think you had a more specific question. No, no, no. I just I did want you to plug the newsletter because I I love getting it and it's a fantastic roundup. But while we're on it with representation, where are you seeing good fat representation? Well, I'm gonna tell you right now, like the thing I'm most, most excited about today on this, you know,
1: day heading into uh the 2023 Fat Liberation Month, Jeff Jenkins, never say never on National Geographic. Like I absolutely love this show. Um, it is incredible fat representation with like just the right amount to me of our protagonist, Jeff Jenkins, who travels all over the world doing adventury travel stuff, like just the right amount of him being attentive to the fact that he is fat. But I mean, what I mean by that is like, he's talking about it. He's being vulnerable about some of the things that come up for him, both in terms of physical accessibility, but also some of the emotional things, you know, of living in a fat body and knowing how people are looking at you. But there's there's enough of that that we're getting like some raw perspective on that. But that's not what the whole show is. The whole show is not like, um, you know, let me tell you how hard it is to be fat, right? It's... And it's not even just like, here I am as a fat guy, right? It's here here I am as a fat guy who likes to do these things. Let's do the things I like to do. And let's figure out how I can get to do them. So I love, love, love this show. You know, I think we are, like, bless Lizzo in many ways. I think we're a little over-focused on Lizzo sometimes. um, Because we... There are other <laughs> like there are other fat celebrities, and sometimes we like drop her name and stop there. Folks are really excited. I haven't seen it yet. Folks are really excited about Survival of the Thickest. Um, you know Michelle uh, Buteau's uh, Netflix show. There are you know I love things that Dulce Sloan is doing. The um, I I just you know I feel like I just made this point about not only dropping Lizzo's name and no other celebrities, but all the other celebrities' names just ran out of my head right now, but. Y'all know, (laughs) I I hope that in every place this podcast is shared where you're allowed to make comments, you will make comments about other celebrities that you want to see people pay more attention to. Well, I love, you know, Dex Rated, the dancer and judge on uh, that reality dance show about people dancing with their kids. I can't think of of them. Like they're just, there's just like a bunch more representation. Um, And also there's a way in which sometimes when I get approached by people who are outside of fat liberation with questions about fat representation in the media, what I often get is like, uh, Lizzo, so it's all good right now, right? And like, no, there's way more fat representation than there used to be. And not all of it is, you know, who's, what's the diet, you know, what what's the weight loss yeah. uh, subplot on the sitcom or whatever. It's not all that. So, yay. And also, by whatever calculations you use, whether you use these chasty medical models or whether you use like uh, shady medical models or whether you use like your own visual identification of fat people, whether like whatever you use, fat people as a percentage of the population are dramatically more people than what we see in media representation, both news representation and entertainment representation, right? So if you can watch a movie and there is a fat character and you feel like, oh, now we're done. Representation is done. Please go to your local grocery store and tell me you only see one fat person, right? Please go to your kid's elementary school and tell me you only see one fat person. We should not have, it shouldn't be like a a one and done in that Right. We should be all over the place all the time as our glorious selves, you know, without apology for being fat, but also without it always being the attention being that we're fat. Um, You know, sometimes it is just we are we are the fat character in the thing and not just the fat sidekick in the thing, the fat protagonist in the thing. And it's not a story about us being fat. It's just a story about us hunting werewolves or whatever the thing is. Right. So, so yeah, like we're getting there, but also like, we're not done. There's this, like, there's this thing that people do. And that's kind of what I mean about the sort of like over, over emphasis of Lizzo, the sort of like, well, Lizzo made it. Now it's all now fat anti-fatness doesn't exist because Lizzo made it. Right. No, that's not really how this is working.
0: I kind of feel like Lizzo is to the anti-fatness movement as Obama was to racism in America. It's Like, we got one and we're good. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, check America's solved its problem,
1: and also we got one, and so you're they're the one, so you're not allowed to be critical right. of it in any way, right? I feel like you should be happy to have that, you'd be happy to have Lizzo, so you're not allowed to be mm-hmm. critical. Anyway. Like, and like, I don't want to spend all of our time in Fat Liberation criticizing a fat black woman who is living her best no. life, but also. I don't want to act like there's nothing we could discuss about the fact that yitty is shapewear. Yeah. It's not just draws, right? It's shapewear and shapewear, you know, is it just that it makes you feel good or it holds your body in a certain way or it, you know, you like the way it looks under this dress or this is what you sleep in, whatever. Mm-hmm. All that is yes, sure. And also, you know, look more snatched is still a sort of like, look more like a thin person at your size, right? And there's a critique to be made there. You mm-hmm. don't have to agree with the critique, but there is a dialogue to have there, not just a like, Lizzo is our queen, don't say anything ever, right? You know, and again, you want to have that dialogue with some sense of intersectionality. You want to understand mm-hmm. how little Lizzo is criticized differently or how some of the ways that she's not criticized by white folks is not about their racial justice politics. It's about their historic you know, appreciation of Black entertainers for very particular and racial reasons, right? Like, there's a whole complicated conversation to have around Lizzo that's not just Lizzo is too fat or Lizzo is our queen, right? Like, there's a complicated conversation. And that's when we know we're getting closer to making it. Like, in all of the areas of oppression, when you can be living so authentically or be represented so authentically that you can talk about all that stuff instead of just having to be grateful for whatever you get then you're getting closer to, like, to really, like, letting fat people be people. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that's exciting, right? And then there's, and there's also, like, I I can't keep up with all these books. I'm like, I, you know, a few years ago, even just a few years ago, it was still, like, I could buy all the fat books that came out, or at least all the fat mainstream books, maybe not all the academic books, but Mm -hmm. I could at least buy all the fat mainstream books that came, came out and read them all and be in the know when somebody mentioned a name. Now I got this bookshelf back here. (laughs) Like half these books are from this year. Even when I was, you know, volunteering as the chair of NAFA, you know, which I was doing and I was just like side gigging and, and be getting support from my family and my loved ones and my community. Shout out, thank you to my Patreon supporters who supported me even when I wasn't creating any Patreon content because the content I was creating was NAFA. Like I was not over here like, I got all this money but I prioritized my money to support a local bookstore that supports fat writers and to support fat writers. So I always was still buying books, but I can't read them all because I I forget that I'm on a podcast and your listeners cannot see my bookshelf. I have a whole bookshelf behind me that is the fat bookshelf is just the fat books. And some of them are historical fat books, but a lot of them are from the last few years. That is incredible. You know, that fat folks are able to make a living, or at least make a part of a living um, writing about their experiences, creating stories that celebrate fat lives um, that honor fat lives, even when that doesn't feel like a celebration and, you know, and that people want more of it, you know, and again, that they're not all just the sort of like memoir of being a fat person that some of them are. They're like, you know, I'm, I'm a fat mermaid or I'm like, I'm a fat
0: I feel like there's an actual werewolf hunter. I feel like there is fat vampire and the fat vampire series is fucking brilliant. And they turned it into a Hulu series. And I got to say like chef's kiss. uh, It is so complex in its representation of bodies. Fucking love fat vampire. I cannot wait to check that out.
1: And I just like, yeah, all of this stuff that is like, but again, you know, yay for you know Aubrey's on the New York Times bestseller list, or like people are talking about Sabrina Strings' book, which really is a textbook and would have only been talked about in yes. very academic circles a few years ago, but is being talked about in a different way. Or you know, like uh, you know Jessica Williams, uh, uh, Jessica Wilson's collection about like Black women's bodies, or like like all of these books, like yay, and also. Where's the Danielle Steele of of fat writers? Where's the Stephen King of fat writers? Where's the, you know, like, and where are there still the barriers to publishing these stories? Or these books are being published by smaller presses. So these authors are, you know, when I said before, making a living or making part of a living, like, let's have more of the making a living level ones. And let's really think about where anti fatness systemically or personally or in our own sort of like sense of limitations of what we thought we could do. In either way, where anti-fatness is part of what gets in the way of having even more of
0: this. And While we're on that, I'm going to do a shout out to two prior guests. When it comes to the Stephen King of fatness, we had Gretchen Felker Martin on who wrote Manhunt, which is, I mean, that book slayed me. And it's violent and gory and body horror in a way. And I fucking love Gretchen. Um, so chicken for that book, but I will say for folks who
1: like to think about violent content stuff, Mm -hmm. um, Brittany ransom from the wind killers get caught podcast is really fantastic. And I just listened to one episode. I of her podcast with my two favorite teenagers. So like, I'm like, oh, okay, this is cross generally. It's not just my bias that I like Brittany. It's also like the teenagers who listen to all the murder podcasts were like, this is really great. Tell her we love her. So yeah. So that, the, so that for folks who are looking for that kind of content
0: and you were going to yeah, give that, shout- and then, uh, another shout out to, to Meg Elison, who was on the show. She did the book of the unnamed midwife and the road to nowhere. Trilogy. She, and she just won last year for the short story, The Pill, which is about a pill that um, makes people thin, but kills off 10% of the people who take it and how that manifests. And that it's a short story. And <laughs> oh, okay. that hurt me to the core. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, you guys I can't was- see the the expressions, but I, I was being a smart ass
1: by, you know, my fake cough Ozempic blaming right there. But I, I do want what right. I, one, one thing like just side note. One thing I want to say mm-hmm. is one of the biggest challenges right now of the super intense media and social media coverage of drugs like Ozempic, um, you know, like the, the Wigovies and the all the all the diabetes drugs that are now being converted to weight loss only drugs and getting FDA approved for that is that. It is a super complicated situation for us to be in individually or as a community in which people who we love deeply, and care about a lot in our communities, need these drugs for their actual original intended medical purposes, (laughs) but then feel some sense of shame or division around the fact that the drugs are manufactured by companies that we think of often as like enemy companies in, in fat rights movement, in fat liberation movement. And I just want to name that complication because mm. I'm not going to stop talking about what my concerns are about these drugs. And also I don't want people who need the drugs for other reasons to be shamed. And I don't want them to not get the medical treatment they need. What I want is for that industry to shift, you know, that multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical industry to shift in ways that require huge systemic change so that people who need pharmaceuticals for whatever medical conditions situations they have are able to get those in ways that are affordable to them and accessible to them. and that that and that profit on falsely constructed ideas about how bodies need to be changed, gets eliminated. So like, we haven't talked about the O words and like, and that is a thing I get asked about a lot, you know, the, the, the words, obesity and overweight and why we don't use those words. And uh, many fat activists, for those who don't know this, will actually even asterisk out letters of those words. When you see them in writing to indicate this is a slur to us. And the reason Mm is, you know, the reason people consider it a slur or even, you know, at least want to go on record with uh objection to it is partly about the word itself and its like the etymology of the word but also about the framework of designating all people with a certain body type as diseased, regardless of their actual medical profile and often based on projections about what their future medical profile will be will, will be uh, um according to the medical establishment and it's a lot and it's complicated. And I know a lot of people who are new to this actually think they should use the word obese or the word overweight because those are the words the medical establishment uses. So like those are the formal words or those are the um the official words or whatever. But just understanding that like there's a lot of objection to that. And the objection is also to the framework itself, you know, um, the idea that the medical establishment is always right and that they have said that. All people who are fat are diseased. It, you know, there's a lot more debate in medical circles about that than the mainstream media will lead you to believe, um, historically and contemporarily. And also, like, there's this complication, again, like getting into like nuance and complication, right? There's this complication around um, if we believe in body autonomy, which most fat liberationists will name as a high value. To us, then do people have the right to lose weight? And, like, do they have the right to, like, are they wrong if they believe the medical construction of obesity or the sort of media construction of the obesity um panic ep- epidemic, whatever? Like, are they wrong or do they just get to? <laughs> do they just, everybody gets to lose weight if they want to? And if people want to take these drugs, yay. Right. And so, what I always say to that is, like, I do truly believe in body autonomy. I also believe in informed consent. And I don't think people are getting the real opportunity to make informed consent choices around these drugs as they relate to weight loss because the whole system of the information you give me about what it means to be fat medically is, is based in bias thinking, right? So anyway, that was, I know that was like a hard turn from like, we were talking about werewolves. <laughs> like, ooh, no, obesity. but it's is- but that it's story a critical that conversation. Story.
0: Yeah. That, say say again the, the name and author of that story, please. So it's the pill, and it's by um Meg Elison. And I have I'll put the link up in, in the show notes again and stuff for it. Um, because Meg is one of my favorite writers, brilliant, brilliant woman. But yeah, this came out a couple years ago, and it's all about a new pill that comes out that cures weight loss, and eventually how society starts to see fatness when you can take a pill and it's only a 10% risk, you'll die if you take it and get thin. Only, right? Only a 10%. Only.
1: Like, think about what that shows us about just how pervasive sure. anti-fatness is if people are willing to take a 10% risk, that they would ra- rather die than be fat. And, you know, Philip Berrigan has a, a, a graphic novel with his... His illustrator is Mason. Sorry for getting Mason's last name, but y'all look this Mm -hmm. up. It's called Fattison. It's a three-part graphic novel series, and it's about a world in which it has... The government has prohibited being fat, so you can go to jail for being fat. Like, that's also, like, for folks who, you know, the sort of dystopian future or the dystopian future, question mark? Or closer to the present than we want to admit, question mark. Uh, But for folks who like that kind of um, fiction slash potentially future nonfiction... Um, I I recommend that one too, but that, that piece around like um, the O word stuff, like the use of the word Mm -hmm. concept of obesity as a disease, the, um, the pushback on the sort of like, but if I don't want to be fat, I shouldn't have to be what's, that doesn't make me wrong any more than it makes you wrong to be okay with staying fat. Like all of that nuanced conversation, it gets bullhorned only from one side of it right so it's not really a nuance it's not as nuanced of a conversation as it should be around the complications of you know capitalism and pharmaceuticals being made by for-profit companies or like you know, who gets to decide for whom about what the pressures are or like all of that stuff it, it's there's a lot of like really big picture stuff that we actually only look at a very skewed big big picture of. And so I guess like again going back to the sort of like what are our goals you know our goal is to get more people questioning the the default presumptions and assumptions that they make about fat and fat people
0: And I appreciate you pointing out that it is a very complex thing to break down and understanding where the messaging has come from and who has the power for the messaging and all of that before you even get into individual choice and body autonomy, like I, I've spent two years on this podcast and we've just scratched the surface on those. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah,
1: and you can't you, you can't do five podcast episodes a day, right? <laughs> like because but you kind of you almost have to to get to like the level of I feel like I'm just scratching the surface and I do this as a full time job. Right. I've done it in some capacity or another for like 15 years. And I often feel like I'm just scratching the surface. So but I guess the point but but like, please scratch the surface. If you're new, if you're listening and you're still listening (laughs) after all my tangents, please like scratch the surface. Right. Scratch the surface um, and then and then dig deeper in whatever areas are most interesting to you and then talk to other people about that. So that we're not like, so that we're just not accepting at face value, what we are told about fat people, what we are shown about fat people, what we believe about fat people's bodies and health profiles and personalities, you know, and characteristics based on all of this stuff. That's not actual experience with
0: those people. Just like go deeper, just go deeper. If people want to support NAFA, if they want to support the work there, if they want to donate, if they want to follow, like, find all these things, plug away. You can
1: learn a lot about NAFA. You can see some of the things we're up to. You can read our community voices blog and you can give to us at NAFA.org slash give. Um, Our fat liberation month calendar is, is up and we will still be adding some more things to that. But, that is, you'll be easily to find it at our web. It will be easy for you to find it at our website and on social media. We are most active on Instagram, but we are on most of the other things. And we are NAFA official on, on whatever your favorite one is. Uh, personally, I am I of the tigress. So like letter I of the tigress that's, and I, I too am more active on Instagram probably than the others. So I'm happy to connect with you in that space.
0: Thank you so much. And listeners, we're going to have all of those links and more up on our show notes and on our site. Check out NAFA. I love their work. I love getting their newsletters and following along with what they do. If you have the ability, please, please, please support them with a donation or two or recurring. And also, if you support specifically the legislative
1: work that we are doing, please sign our petition for the campaign for size freedom, which you can also find our, you know, on our website at NAFA.org. You know, petitions do not magically make change, but they do. We can leverage them for more media coverage. We can use them to do outreach to legislators. So we really want to build those numbers. I want to see us raise $15,000 and get 15,000 signatures on that petition during Fat Liberation Month. So, you know. Give it to me, y'all. Give it to me.
0: Excellent. And thank you so much. And as we go into Fat Liberation Month on September 2nd, I am hosting an all bodies chunky dunk swim here in Grass Valley. So if you're in Northern California, please come out. We have trans affirming, gender affirming, size affirming swimwear. All bodies will be there. We're eating, eating, and drinking at the pool, and that'll be up on our site too. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hey. So many fat movements hey. this year.
1: Oh my gosh
0: and now a moment of gratitude
1: i live outside of phoenix so i'm grateful for all the things that help people stay cool and like and I like I'm grateful for air conditioning. I'm grateful for ice, you know, I'm grateful for housing. I, I'm thinking a lot about folks who are um unhoused and what what that means in any inclement weather, but especially as here where I live, there's just been this like nonstop, relentless super heat over here. So I'm like, you know, and like in a in the sort of like lighter and more fun ways, like I am grateful for ice because I love Sonic and it's right down the street from me and they have perfect ice and and you know, but I feel really like Blessed and lucky and privileged, whatever those words mean to you, I feel them all um, in having access to things. And I'm super grateful for community support because it's really exciting, like institutionally and in terms of like the symbolic meaning to our movement to have been able to get to the point with NAFA where we could do this hiring of me. But also on a like really personal level, you know, if I hadn't been able to live with my mom. (laughs) You know, if I hadn't been able to, you know, have the friend who sent me a rollator when I needed one instead of me just having to wait until I could save up for one or, you know, the 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 folks who just like sort of like shot me money from time to time. We couldn't have gotten to this point with NAFA without the flexibility of not working a regular job. And so I'm just like super grateful for that kind of the way that I was the beneficiary of mutual aid even though I don't think any of the people who were providing it to me would have thought of it that way. And I'm really grateful to be in a position to do some more paying it forward now, you know, personally, and then as, you know, as an, as also as an organization that, you know, that we're trying to um, uh, build a longer table, as they say. So really super grateful for those things.
2: Fun Factory has the Amor, which is a very popular dildo of theirs, and they wanted to collaborate do a collab with me. So we did the boy slut buy a more dildo and it's in the bisexual flag colors. So it's like the peak blue and magenta. It is on the smaller side, which is so funny because I had a few like friends being like, Zach, like this is gonna fall in my asshole. Like, you know, your readers are can take fucking fists. So why did you get the small one? I was like, so it is a little bit on the smaller side but that makes it great for beginners. It makes it great for foreplay. It makes it great to warm things up. And then if you want to take a bigger dick or you want to take a bigger dildo, you're welcome to do that. But and it's, you know, harness compatible, uh, made from a silicone, all of that stuff. And it is it is so cool to have this. It is. I mean, the toy itself is just great. And again, really great for beginners and something I just use to warm myself up with and just jack off with, too, when I'm like, yeah, especially if I don't want to like douche or like do something like that. And I can put something small in there. Anyway, I don't want to get too graphic here. It is. So much fun. You can buy the book on, yeah, you can buy the dildo, sorry, on Fun Factory. And they actually have like a package deal. So you can buy the book and the dildo together. Something I highly recommend doing. And also a really fucking great gift for any bisexual person in your life.
0: And I totally second that. My review of it is fantastic. We'll have the links to all of that. Get the package, get the dildo,
2: get the book enjoy them together there are chapters that are appropriate to read with it in you oh absolutely and i i posted on instagram i was like has anyone like jacked off while reading my book and like literally i got into a poll. It was something where like 40 percent were like oh yeah i'm like all right you guys are just saying that like what section did you jack off to and then they're like literally naming it. i'm like oh okay yeah no no that was that was a sexier section okay no you weren't You are not lying here. No, I I take it. So you can also, while learning to overcome sexual shame, you can also pleasure yourself. I feel like the two go hand in hand.
0: At FatChicksOnTop.com com